Hi, this is Debony Morgan for Zeitgeist Podcast, The Spirit of Now, where we talk to spiritual leaders and influencers about what they believe is going on in the world right now. Today, we're not talking to one, but four terrific wisdom teachers here in Atlanta. And we're speaking to them because they are the teachers for our mystics series, where we talk about the mystic side of several different traditions. And I'd like you to meet them and get to know a little bit more about what they'll be presenting in the workshops, but also exciting things of understanding other traditions way of looking at the world. So with us today, we have Kamal Kuruku, who is a lifelong Sufi and will be teaching our workshop on Muslim spirituality and specifically Sufism. We have Mitch Cohen, uh, Rabbi Mitch Cohen, uh, who is obviously of the Jewish faith, but would consider himself more of a perennialist. Mitch is going to be talking about Kabbalah and the mystic insights that we can take from that. Carl McCollman is with us, a very renowned Christian spiritual teacher, although Carl is uh, educated and practiced in other traditions as well, and considered an expert on Christian mysticism. And we have Steve Gold. Uh, who is interestingly uh, raised Jewish and very informed in that tradition, but also very practiced and uh, expert in the Hindu Vedanta tradition. And we're going to be talking about yoga and the meditative side of that in his workshop. So guys, if I, if there's anything you'd like to add to your introductions, um, just go ahead and jump in there as we begin. But I have a question for each of you. And that is based on a conversation that Kamal and I had a while back. And he asked the, the, what a perfect wisdom teacher question to ask. And he said, Devaney, how are we going to do a workshop where we talk about things that you can't really talk about? How do we, let me pause, pass that to y'all. How do we talk about the ineffable? How do you do a workshop on something that is gained from practice and insight? Just by the definition of the name Kabbalah, or many people call it Kabbalah, it's okay either way. Uh, It means that which is received. um, And it was used in ancient times uh, pretty much as a way to experience the divine presence. And so, you know, I feel that we can talk about different aspects of practices, um, not necessarily get intellectual, but give give people things that they can do in order to um, have that experience of the divine. Now, the, the challenge is just the definition of that which is received is a dualistic definition, right? It would mean that God's somewhere out there sending signals. I, I once used the diagram of a radio receiver or a satellite dish. Um, and that, you know, we were constantly getting divine messages. That's more of a dualistic approach, but there's also the aspect of divinity within. And, you know, one of the things in my section that I'm going to talk about are 10 emanations or behaviors that we exhibit, which is a way that we are created in, in the divine image. I would add to that, um, this is Steve, uh, the question was, how, how do you talk about the ineffable? Well, you don't talk about the ineffable other than refer to it. 
And, and I know that all of us have been very involved in, in silent contemplation because all of us, I think, have recognized that the ultimate essence of spiritual experience is beyond words um, and it's pretty much unspeakable. But that's a dimension that we, if we're fortunate enough, we can connect with once in a while. Um, but in addition to that, we also come out of those states realizing that there are other phenomenal dimensions that can be talked about and that we function in phenomenal uh, dimensions, not only touching, dipping our toe in the non-phenomenal that can't be talked about. So as Mitch was describing on into the phenomenal realm, there's plenty of things that you can talk about um, uh, that, that emanate out of that ineffable oneness, unity that's beyond words, uh, but that are various uh, experiences, revelations that folks over centuries have had, and the commonalities of some of those revelations that help lead us back to that ultimate non-experience. Um, so that's what speaking about this stuff is about to me. Hi, this is Carl McCullman. I'd like to offer an analogy that um, the dance between the what can be spoken of and what cannot be spoken of is like a beautiful diamond that's being set in a setting. If you don't put the diamond in a setting, you're at risk of losing the diamond. The setting, a good setting will enhance the diamond and actually help it's to shine more brightly. And so whenever we speak of the mysteries, the, the words that we speak, that's the setting. The jewel is not the setting. The jewel can only be accessed through the heart, through silence, through, um, through the self-emptying process of, of various practices. Each tradition has its own practices, but they tend to cover a similar terrain. But the stories we tell, the practices, the the stories of the great mystics and contemplatives, uh, their teachings, that's all the setting for the jewel. So we need both the setting and the jewel. Communication takes place in many different ways. Um, you know, we learn about talking and reading and writing, um, some visual communication also, uh, but there are other ways of communicating. Uh, sometimes we look into the eyes of somebody and we realize that we understand something about that person, but we don't know what that is. We don't know how we receive that information, but it comes. Uh, in Sufi tradition, uh, people talk about a teacher painting their students with their own color. Uh, so to be in the presence of somebody, a, a teacher, uh, allows you to be painted by them, by, by the teacher. And this is more effective than any other form of communication. It changes you without you even realizing that it is changing you. Um, so we are not just about you know, this body. We have other dimensions where we exist, where we communicate via different methods, and we do not know all of them, at least not yet. Um, so how do we 
talk about those things. You know, there are stories of uh, Sufi teachers coming together, sitting for an hour without talking and then leaving. It's like, that was a nice meeting. What happened there? Uh, we don't understand what happened there, but those who experience it know what it is. Yeah, so we need to be open to receive those communications first. If we are not open, it doesn't matter what kind of communication we receive, it's not gonna affect us. Yeah, very beautiful answers from, from all of you. And, um, and moving to, and thinking about the year that we, that year and a half and continuing in some ways, some situations of, of not being able to necessarily sit in the same room and, and, and have that, uh, unspoken connection or unspoken communication, but we certainly have access to the divine wherever we are and uh, whatever we're doing. And Kamal, when you're talking about the uh, looking into the eyes, right. And having that, that experience, it reminded me, I've recently been watching uh, the older TV show, the leftovers. I don't know if y'all have seen that, but I, I very, very highly recommend it. And I think it's a, it's an entire uh, series that is fictional, but I, I think it explores the question of how do we deal with, uh, with suffering in the human experience. And so that, that led me to pose the question to y'all and it feels uh, maybe, maybe we're going too deep, too fast, but within your tradition, how, how do you approach suffering? and meaning making in our human experience. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in. Uh, since I teach out of the Christian tradition, you know, where the, the central event is a man being put to death in a very brutal and grisly way. So, so the Christian tradition has struggled with this question of suffering and what is the meaning of suffering? What is the purpose of suffering? Why is there suffering, et cetera, et cetera, for 2000 years. And I know the other traditions have as well. So, but just to look at the Christian spin on it. Um, first of all, suffering is not something that we should, you know, stand up and clap about. Suffering is painful. It, 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 it's painful. It's devastating. And, um, and yet there can be meaning in suffering there can be a way to kind of situate our suffering in a larger story, a larger kind of way of seeing the world. And so to use kind of the traditional language, suffering can be redemptive. Suffering can actually bring value or bring meaning or bring purpose in. This is not to say that we should go after suffering, but it's to acknowledge that sometimes suffering happens in, in every life. We all sooner or later experience death or, or, or illness or loss, you know, there are various ways in which we suffer. It's just part of the human condition. And so, so the idea is to, um, to access, again, to follow on your first question, um, Devaney, to access that ineffable relationship with the mystery, call it God, the divine, whatever language you want to use, but to access that, that profound relationship as a way of, number one, making sense of it or suffering, Number two, putting the suffering into a larger context. 
And then number three, even learning from the suffering and responding to it. For example, I would say one of the teachings of suffering is that we are all responsible for working together to minimize or eliminate suffering. And that's why there's such a strong justice tradition in, in all of the mystical paths. Um, we, we work for justice because we fight suffering. I'll go next. This is uh, Mitch again. It's a great question. Um, in the in the Jewish tradition, suffering is accepted as just part of being alive. It's not anything to be avoided, um, nor to use spiritual bypassing, um, you know, to 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 walk around, if you will. And I think of two texts. One of them I don't remember the number, but it's Deuteronomy. I put before you life and death, choose life. Um, and then the other one is Isaiah 45. Um, I form the light, create darkness. I make peace and create evil. And we've always kind of referred to those texts from, uh, again, from a non-dual perspective and that it's all in the, in the whole enchilada of being alive. There's good in life. There's evil in life. And that's just part of it. And, the paradox is to be accepting of pain and suffering doesn't mean you have to like it. It means you have to accept that you will pass through this dark night of the soul. Of course, then there's the book of Job, which um, I for years hated the end of because, you know, he was pretty much told at the end is, Hey, stop complaining. You know, what did you do? You know, I did all this stuff and you, 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 you know, you went through all this stuff. Uh, but no, I, I like an, a commentary interpretation that Rabbi Rami Shapiro has uh, for Job at the end is where he actually came to a point of acceptance of all the pain and suffering along with all the good um, that he had. And because God never said why he did any of that stuff in the book, it simply was something to be um, accepted without needing an answer. So suffering is, is just a part of living, even the, the Jewish death rituals, you know, where there are set points for an entire year, um, acknowledges the fact that grief is painful and it's not to be avoided. Um, and you're not done at the end of the year. In fact, we have times throughout the life cycle where we uh, memorialize our lost loved ones. So we never forget them. We have rituals literally around lighting a memorial candle on the anniversary of their passing. Um, or certain holidays, four times a year, we, we have a particular memorial service. So we never want to forget who we lost, which is an acknowledgement of pain being part of life. Yeah. And I, and I know for, from both of you, Carl and Mitch, that you have each experienced very, very painful loss and so this is not just a philosophy this is something that, that you've learned in your in your bones and so i think that's one of the things that makes each of you such great teachers uh but Stephen kamal please can continue to tell us more you know suffering is real uh, for the person who's experiencing it um, but where is it coming from? Uh, I agree with Carl that suffering and injustice or justice has a lot to do with each other. Um, in Islam, there's a term called zulm. Uh, zulm is uh, sometimes translated as, a, um, as uh, oppression. 
But for example, uh, Jonah, the prophet Jonah, when he was in the belly of the fish, there's a prayer in our book that he recites in the belly of the fish. He says, uh, oh Lord, I have wronged myself. I caused zulm on myself. Now he's in the belly of the fish, obviously he's suffering. You know, he may die, but he is acknowledging that he is there because of a mistake he made. And he acknowledges that this suffering was caused by uh, his uh, doing. And this doesn't mean that suffering always comes that way. Sometimes suffering is caused by other people's injustices. You know, your neighbor is an unjust person and then you suffer. Uh, so human beings do cause suffering to each other, definitely. But we also have to have a little perspective. For example, when my daughter was a baby, three months old, I took her to a doctor and they stabbed her in her leg with a needle and she cried. She was suffering, but I did it for her benefit so that she wouldn't get sick later on. Uh, so, for example, right now, my daughter is in school. Uh, we lock her up in a building that she cannot leave. And not always she wants to be there. You know, she wants to get out. But we force her to go to this place called school. And she suffers because of that. But at the same time, she learns something. So we have to have a perspective. And we don't necessarily have the right perspective at the moment of suffering. Sometimes when we are out of it, we may say, well, that was a blessing. I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, so we have to be cautious uh, because what happens is when we are suffering, sometimes we go overboard and blame God. In reality, it is either us or another human being, uh, or maybe it is a lesson that we needed to learn. We don't know the final result. As my father used to say, he would say, wait until the end of the movie. Uh, you know, don't be so quick to judge things. Uh, but suffering is real and it is our responsibility as human beings to prevent suffering for other people as well as ourselves. God does not will suffering. He didn't want us to suffer. You know, he's a merciful God. Uh, so if there is any suffering in my life, I have to take a look at myself. Where did this come from? Am I learning anything from this? Uh, but of course, Talking like this, one needs to practice humility because the person who's suffering, uh, you know, you have to be humble about this and say, acknowledge that they are suffering. It is real. Um, so it is not easy. Uh, but in this life, what is? <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. So uh, this is Steve. Um... I've heard a lot of threads running through the discussion so far, uh, perspectives, dimensions. Um, uh, to, I'm supposed to be representing at least partly the Vedantic view, and I, I don't think I'm an extreme Vedantist. Um, so, but there is certainly a, a general strain of viewpoint in the Vedanta worldview that suffering arises out of our sense of separation from oneness. And to the extent that we believe we are separate beings, disconnected and independent and not interdependent, um, that is uh, the primary cause of suffering. And the solution is to reconnect, realize, come to a deep 
not just a, a uh, intellectual acknowledgement, but a whole body, whole spirit, whole soul connection with that oneness, uh, that mercifulness, uh, that love that generates all of life. Uh, and that is the ultimate solution. But while we are still suffering beings, the, the sense of perspective that I've heard, the dimensions, there is always, Vedanta would posit it at minimum, there is always a dimension where there is no suffering. And it is worthwhile to have a sense of that and connect with that and realize that it's part of your total being. Uh, and there are other parts of your being that may experience suffering, but you experience it within the context and the perspective of this overall, and as all of our traditions say, these things too shall pass. So the suffering never lasts forever. Nothing ever in the phenomenal world ever lasts forever. That certainly is the Vedantic view. Everything is transient. Everything changes. Everything is subject to change, death and decay. And seek that which does not, where moth and dust doth not corrupt to borrow from the Christian tradition, which Vedantists often do. Beautiful, beautiful, guys. Well, here's another question, and it might be connected to what we were just talking to. Um, in each of your traditions, what does spiritual maturity look like? <laughs> You go first, Kamal. You're giggling more. <laughs> I'll let you know when I find out. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, Kamal. <laughs> we'll say more uh, about that, guys. Uh, so why, that, why is it not a rubric? I, 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 I want to share something. I've, I've seen the Dalai Lama a few times now. And the best answer to your question is what somebody asked him and how he answered it. Uh, the questioner said, you know, your holiness, you know, what's it going to take for us to get to such an enlightened place that, that you are, you know, how much practice did you have to do? And if any of you ever seen the Dalai Lama, he giggles like a little kid <laughs> and he just giggled for about 30 seconds. And, you know, the whole audience started laughing with him. And he finally said, I don't know. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I mean, that's a very simple answer. And also one of my other teachers, Adya Shanti, a, a Buddhist teacher out in California. Um, and during the Q&A uh, uh, se uh, session of the five-day retreat, somebody asked him, you know, what's it like for you and Mukti? Mukti is his wife. And he also laughed and said, there's a lot of ego. So both the Dalai Lama and Adyashanti answered the question is that's why we call them practices, right? Because we never get there. So all of us, you know, that are here right now, I know we have our daily uh, individual practices that, and I know us all well, we're never going to stop doing them because we're, we both understand that we're never going to get there. But boy, is the journey fun. This is Steve to piggyback on that. The idea I would I, I the, the 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 word that came to my mind was process. We are all in process, and who is to judge 
where someone is in process. Uh, probably the best, if there's going to be a judging at all, an assessment at all, it should be on an individual level. Uh, for an individual to feel an urge to want to progress, to want to move, to want to transform, to want to grow and develop. And no one can judge that better than oneself. And, and looking at it historically, a lot of practices encourage uh, spiritual diarying, spiritual journeying, uh, journaling, uh, and once in a while looking back. And, and you often will see a, a, a progression. So, uh, and, and that encourages you to stay the course and keep going or maybe change course, who knows. But as long as, as someone senses that their life is not a vicious circle, but it is a spiral and, and an advancing spiral in some form or fashion. Um, and we're all in process because infinity can never be totally understood because we're, we're dealing with, we're dealing with the edges of infinity and eternity and who can ever possibly have a full grasp of that. You know, um, Jesus said, become like little children. And so when, when Mitch was talking about the Dalai Lama, that's all I could think about, you know, and, and yeah, this, it's kind of like the most advanced among us tend to be the giggliest, you know, they smile a lot. Think about all the statues of the laughing Buddha that are out there, you know, um, uh, Ramakrishna you know, out of, out of, out of the Indian tradition there again and again and again, it just seems, you know, or, or, or Rumi, you know, and Shams, you know, there's just this delight and this playfulness and this kind of lightness that, that, that seems to be the marker. So we're entering into the realm of paradox. It's like, in order to become a master, be like a kid, you know, be silly and playful. It's like, well, wait a minute, this is serious stuff here. Of course it's serious stuff which is all the more reason why we need to be silly and playful and have fun with it, you know, and find joy. You know, joy is the second fruit of the spirit, second only to love. So, um, you know, so, so it's, um, it's I, I don't, you know, the, 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 the program is there is no program. You know, it's like, like we're, we're, we're invited and, and, and Mitch mentioned the practices. I mean, the practices are really important. You know, but even there, once in a while, the practices you can contribute up to, you know, so it's, it's having this kind of non-attached relationship to all of it, you know, but then always going back to, you know, am I cultivating love? Am I cultivating joy? Am I cultivating peace? Am I cultivating compassion and kindness towards, you know, my fellow human beings? You know, those are the questions, you know, and, and guess what? The most enlightened person has bad days. Jesus cursed a fig tree, Okay. You know, it happens. And so, um, you know, so, so every now and then we fall flat in our face. Boom. You know, we end up, we end up in the belly of the fish. But then the fish throws you up. You have another chance. So, so fish barf, uh, that's, that's the answer to the question. <laughs> uh, I, I like to frustrate some of my friends are fundamentalist atheists. Always fun to have conversations. <laughs> with. And so they're like, oh, what's your religion? I was like, my religion's not knowing. All right. <laughs> where, where do we want to go with that? Right. 
I, I love what Swami, Swami Beyondananda said that, you know, you need to be a fundamentalist, which means you put the fun before the mental. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one before. That's great. Put the fun before the mental. So. <laughs> and Bethany, I, I, we have a, I think everybody here knows uh, Garrett. Uh, <laughs> he has a saying, uh, he says, when he's talking to people who do not believe, he says, tell me about this God that you don't believe in. I think I don't believe in, in him either. Right. You know, I mean, people b- reject things they don't like, but is this real? Yeah. What is it that they are rejecting? Yeah. Well, and, and I think a lot of, at least from my own experience, when um, I, I come up against somebody who wants to have an argument with me in, in that arena, it's usually somebody who's been wounded mm-hmm. by other people who are spiritually immature. Perhaps we can't define spiritual maturity, but spiritual immaturity is where you get that rigidity and that sense of knowing and rightness, you know? And um, I think those are the people that, that uh, approach life with their dukes up ready to go, you know, because they, they haven't uh, yet had that experience of, of letting, letting go. And, and maybe uh, being able to giggle about something as serious as life, the universe and everything. Um, so y'all mentioned practices a few times. And that was, uh, that was my next question is what, what practices do you find helpful in your own spiritual life? Or do you teach or support others with? I'll jump in because my daily practice borrows from so many. So I start off with 25 minutes of yoga and, um, you know, listening to, uh, uh, you know, the type of music that comes out of India or, uh, or that tradition. Uh, then I sit in meditation for 30 minutes using the Buddhist practice of just focusing on the breath, not, not a mantra based meditation. Then, and I learned this from Gareth, we've mentioned it twice here, is to do some, uh, some quote unquote spiritual reading. Now, I define that for myself as um, psychological inner work that I engage in because I believe to get to the core of the divine heart within me, that there, there's a lot of, I call it barnacles encrusted, encrusted over that pier of light. So I do a lot of reading in the morning of eternal family systems exercises. I do a lot of dream work um, and all of that I consider a spiritual practice. Now, during yoga, I actually say a Jewish prayer in the very first pose that I do called the Shema, which is hero Israel. The Lord is God. The God is one. But I really focus on the God is one. Just to address what Steve talked about from Vedanta. Oneness reminds myself of the interconnectedness. Uh, but then I end it with a, a different type of prayer where I have gratitude to the divine feminine. I use the Hebrew word Shekhinah, which is the divine feminine, but it's really, you know, the mother of the universe. I don't use creator of the universe or king of the universe, which is more in traditional Jewish prayer. That is a more Kabbalistic approach because in Kabbalah, God is not male. God is it, which means there's no way to define um, in anthropomorphic ways God. 
There's even a Kabbalistic name for God, Ain't Sof, which means without end, the infinite one. Um, so that's that's pretty much my daily practice. It involves some yoga, some meditation, some prayer, and a lot of psychological inner work to clear away the log jams. In Islam, um, our practices are very well defined as an ordinary Muslim. Um, you know, we pray five times a day, which interrupts our daily flow so that we can remember God. Uh, you know, we have a month of fasting. We have, you know, charity. Those things are all very well defined and people practice them. Muslims practice them uh, on a regular basis every day. Um, but there is a different level of understanding what they mean and how they affect your life. Um, for example, there is this concept of self-supervision. That means being aware of what you are doing at all times. Um, most of the time we make mistakes when we forget where we are or who we are or who we are dealing with and what we are doing, what we are saying. You know, we make silly mistakes. Uh, so one of the things uh, which is very difficult to practice is, you know, be aware of what you are doing at any moment. Okay, I am about to do something for a customer or I'm, I'm about to talk to this person. What I am saying is going to affect them. And God is watching me at this moment. Should I say the words that comes out of my heart or should I say the words that, you know, comes out of my anger? I have to be aware of what I am doing, and that will allow me to control that thing called, we call ego, uh, which is very difficult. But discipline helps. I mean, praying five times a day, you know, for the entire life, it puts you in a frame of mind of, you know, I have discipline in my life. I have to control my anger. I have to control my desires, which is very difficult. Um, Self-awareness. And another thing is, Seeking sincerity in everything we do. Run away from fakeness. Just be true in everything you do. Um, then I think what happens is all the dirt, all the unnecessary junk will clear out of your system. And then you will be ready to receive some gifts from the merciful creator who's going to shower you with all kinds of exciting things, only if you are ready to receive that. Um, <clears throat> I'll, again, trying to present the yoga, Raja Yoga Vedanta uh, approach. Uh, there's two overarching themes. And one is things that we can do on a mortal level to the extent that we have a sense of separation and a sense of separate identity uh, to address the body that we appear to be inhabiting and the emotions that we appear to be experiencing and the mental machinations that we all go through and, and the breathing that we all breathe. And all those things can be addressed and there are disciplines as Kamal, uh, the term that Kamal used, there are disciplines, there are methods, there are techniques, there are practices to address all those different aspects, starting with the outer physical shell, body, 
the the yoga postures are uh, at first intended to help calm calm us not only externally but internally the internal physiology uh stress management kind of things uh so that uh the body is not a distraction from the ability to go further deeper in towards our essence and this is all about a human effort to begin to dive deeper into the the levels of our being until we can get to our core and having an understanding of all those different levels and 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 practices that address those different levels is helpful to clear away the barnacles the obstacles calm the being down so that the other main point that Kamal was pointing to without he didn't use the word but the word that is often used is grace there's there's something beyond human effort that can dawn on us but the effort helps prepare us for that dawning um so you know the dawning is like that jewel rest coming to rest in the setting the effort is creating the setting and if you do enough work in my tradition they always teach if you do it do the work you do the discipline you do it seriously you will receive the gift but the you can't be you you can't even really conceive of what the, that gift is but it will come grace will come a dawning will come just be open be open to receiving and it will come so there's the uh descending grace and there's the ascending effort mortal physical effort and well in in both the Jewish tradition and the yoga tradition the merging of those two forces are the two triangles that make up the what is called the Jewish star the six-pointed star but it's a significant uh, image in the Vedanta yoga tradition of the heart. And that is the merging, the balancing of those two basic energies, the upward triangle and the downward triangle, and where they achieve their harmony and equanimity and the opening of the heart. That's beautiful, Steve. I didn't realize that symbolism. That's really neat to learn that. Carl, um, how about you? Yeah, the in in the Christian tradition, of course, there are so many different schools of thought and different perspectives. And um I, I'm I'm gonna kind of dodge the question about what my own practice is, mainly because I'm such a contemplative slacker, anyways. But um but to look at um to look at kind of the tradition as a whole. Uh, I think you can identify kind of seven key practices that show up again and again and again. And I would imagine there are corollaries in all of the other traditions as well. But in the Christian tradition, you certainly see an emphasis on prayer, this idea of self-declosure in the face of the divine mystery. You see an emphasis on meditation. And traditionally, Christianity defined meditation as content rich, meditating on, meditating on the mysteries or on the virtues or on the practices. Then there would be contemplation, which is really using the imagination to kind of enter into this, this imaginal space, this magical space where anything becomes possible. Then, then the most radical form, the practice of silence itself, 
moving into what, again, meditation as it's popularly understood, uh, but also this, this idea of what we would call centering prayer, moving into the, the silence deep within one's own being. Then um, what many people today might call mindfulness in the Christian tradition would be called practicing the presence, practicing the divine presence. So learning to find the divine in all things, you know, there, there are techniques for that. Then uh, humility, and humility is a dirty word to a lot of people, but it's not humiliation. Most people, when they hear the word humility, they think humiliation. But in the, in the classical contemplative tradition, humility is about self-forgetfulness. It's about um, not, not being too wrapped up in yourself, this willingness to let go, this willingness to, to be reconciled, to forgive, to, um, to set the ego aside. And then finally, the seventh dimension you know, would be that the traditional name is almsgiving, but I would call that generosity, generosity, hospitality, uh, being of service, working for justice, uh, similar to in the Jewish tradition, uh, tikkunolam, this idea of repairing the world. So, um, so those are kind of like the seven core practices, and almost every mystical teacher in the Christian tradition tends to hit on most of those cylinders. Obviously, different ones, different schools emphasize different different aspects. Ignatian spirituality, which I'm very steeped in, is all about the imagination. So it's that contemplative strand. But the Cistercian Trappist, which I'm also steeped in, is much more about that radical silence. So that's almost like Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. You know, they're both Buddhism, but they're two different strategies. And you certainly see that in the, in the Christian contemplative tradition as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love that they all touch on the same basic principles, right? The, this idea of, of uh, the traditions that are the same threads woven into different images. Um, so lastly, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, can each of you tell us a little bit, what will be the gifts of your workshop? When somebody signs up, what uh, can they expect to, to gain from spending their time with you? It's sort of like the dating game, right? Like, <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say, I am so sexy. You want to be in a room with me for seven hours. And I would say, forget sexy, sexiness. I'm guaranteeing instant enlightenment. Nothing, nothing short of instant enlightenment will suffice. And uh, if, if you aren't instantly enlightened, uh, you don't get your money back. <laughs> I think, you know, my session, they're going to come out learning a lot about Jewish humor. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all, in all seriousness, um, what, what I hope people would, would walk away with is um, particularly the last portion of the class when we do some chanting, both using a drum and I'm going to bring my harmonium in and use that for, for a couple of chants, that they realize that music is the universal language of the soul. And just the feeling that hopefully they leave with from having ha that experience will touch their hearts, not because they sat through a class on Kabbalah, but that they got to, in community, do some things that they may not have done before, or maybe learn some things about how to embody the, the divine presence in the body, because we're going to do a meditation around breathing in the the yud heh vav -Hey, the unpronounceable, ineffable name, as, as we talked, we started off with, breathing literally that into the body, um, and then also breathing in the, the 10 emanations into the body. And so hopefully they walk away um, 
you know, using that uh, to enhance their own spiritual practice, regardless of what religion they are. Sounds good. While it may be, obviously, this is a class, so there will be some information, but you can get information anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, there's a saying of our prophet, peace be upon him. He says, when people gather and remember God, uh, God sends these angels and these angels surround the group and they put their wings of mercy on the group. And then the people in this group start feeling this sense of tranquility and peace. But they don't know where it's coming from. So I do not guarantee anything. I don't know what it is going to be like. If as a group, whoever shows up that day, if as a group we can be present in that moment, and if we can open our hearts and remember God and perhaps feel close to him or at least have the desire of closeness in our hearts i'm hoping maybe some angels will show up mm. and then we will feel the peace that comes with them but obviously i'm not in charge of them so i don't know um, <laughs> but what i'm hoping is i hope to wonder whoever shows up in that class i want to sit and wonder and i want to feel the desire to get to know god better and if we have the desire, maybe he will show some part of himself to us if we are ready to receive and if we are perhaps a little insistent that we want to know. Uh, but who knows what will show up? Yeah, good point. We'll have to, you'll have to show up and see, right? Exactly. <laughs> Debony, one thing I would also want to say, uh, speaking out of, out of the Christian tradition, is that I think, you know, so many people are familiar with kind of the external face of Christianity, the institutional face of Christianity. And, and people are conscious of how the external face of Christianity has a shadow side. Absolutely. It has sometimes caused some terrible things in history. Um, and what I would hope is that by introducing people to the contemplative and the mystical dimension within Christianity, that they will be able to appreciate that wisdom tradition and how it's not the same thing as the external uh, institutional dimension. And that, you know, you can, you can have an appreciation for one, even if you are critical of the other. So that's certainly one piece of what I hope to bring to the table. Uh, and then I just have to echo Kamal, you know, we're, we're just there to be present to, to divine love and divine love will lead us however we are led. And so we'll have an adventure. <laughs> uh, I, uh, this is Steve. I'll add to my, uh, my uh, smug uh, first response with a little more detail about my con um, content. Um, the, the, the general overarching path of yoga uh, in this tradition uh, stemming from India is to become familiar with oneself. And it goes back to the Delphic maxim about know thyself and knowing yourself on all levels. So certainly part of what we'll, we'll be addressing is getting a framework for familiarity of what with what we are really composed of, starting with the body, going to the breath, going to emotion, going to mind, 
and going beyond mind to uh, realms, dimensions um, beyond mind and um, creating a framework for that. And there will be both theory and practice with the focus being on what exactly are we composed of? What are, what is mind? What is emotion? What are the components uh, of that, of them? And also states of consciousness uh, that there are varying states of consciousness that we all experience and having a better perspective and understanding of how that creates the gestalt that is a human being, a divine being uh, living in the material world. Hmm. All right, guys, thanks so much for your time to, uh, to speak to me and one another today. It's neat to have you all in one place on my Zoom screen here, and it is going to be even... Um, do, a, do a screenshot. Oh, I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really going to be delightful for the people that are able to um, meet you for your workshop. And of course, all of them will be recorded. So if you're unable to make a particular date, but you can't resist hearing the wisdom uh, that these gents have for you, then you're welcome to sign up for the entire series and you will get recordings of anything that you're not able to attend um, in person or on your Zoom screen. So thanks again, gents, and look for the show notes to uh, find out about Steve's book, Dimensions. Carl has a new book out, Eternal Heart, and um, there's other places where you can find teaching from these guys. So that will all be in the show notes. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Rabbi Mitch Cohen. I'd like to invite you to the Zeitgeist Atlanta Silent Meditation Retreat, November 16th through 20th. More information, go to our website at zgatlanta.org. Hope to see you there, but not hear you there.